Oh, we are in Daniel chapter 10 this morning, and uh, we only have a couple of minutes to explore this amazing text, but it's, uh, I trust, going to be rich as we seek to explore in, in, uh, in swift fashion today this important theme of spiritual warfare. So let's turn our attention first just to the text itself as we look to Daniel chapter 10. We're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 21 together. This is God's Word. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me, My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep, with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright." For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And came to make you understand what has happened to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and I spoke and I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. 
There is none who contends by my side against these, except Michael, your prince. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, now as we take a few minutes, having now heard your word, now we give ourselves over to its exposition. We want to know what this word means. And we would ask that you would indeed even expand our time, and expand our range of understanding within this time, that we might truly come and encounter you today in this word from Daniel chapter 10. Come and make yourself known to us. We are in desperate need of hearing from you. So come and have your way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the day. It was eight years ago. I had just begun my journey into pastoral ministry. Just passed through the very first kind of anniversary. My first year of pastoral ministry. And it had been a really tough week. It was late at night. Christy was already asleep. I was sitting on the side of the bed, just coming to bed, and it was an ungodly hour. And I was setting my alarm clock for an ungodly early hour. And those words just fell out of my mouth. Surely it's not supposed to be this way. <laughs> Now, you've probably felt that way, probably said those words, or at least thought those words in some form or fashion, and that was my moment. I wish I could say that was the last moment I've ever thought those words or said those words or felt those words to be true. It's not, but it was one of the very first, and I was acknowledging in that moment whether or not I was really alive to it is another thing whatsoever. But I was acknowledging the fact that I expected things to be different than they were. And I believe that they should be in some way. Now you might say, well, Nate, that's probably true. Life is not the way it was supposed to be. In fact, it's not the way it was designed to be by God himself. We have sin that's invaded the world, right? Through the fall of Adam and Eve and everything in the world, including our hearts, has been tainted with sin. We're sinners living in a fallen world. Bad stuff is going to happen. Difficulties are going to be faced. We should learn to expect it. But when I was saying that on the side of my bed that late at night, setting my alarm clock for that early morning, that's not what I meant. I, I didn't mean to make a theological statement uh, about the truth of the matter that the world was broken. I meant to say that life and ministry at that moment wasn't what I expected it to be. That it had in some way or in some form fallen short. And the realization of what I was experiencing was that I had found myself to be more spiritually flat-footed than I really wanted to admit. That my soul had for a little while been leaning back on its heels and that I had grown accustomed to things being cool and calm and collected for a little bit of period of time. 
and I had really put my guard down. And then when the spiritual attacks came, when the challenges and the difficulties came, I was caught unawares, and then all of a sudden I realized what was bubbling out of my spirit was the fact that I had expected something to be different than it was, but in fact I had no right to expect that it should be different. That on what basis was I assuming that things should go smoothly and that everything should work out the way that I had hoped. Well, Daniel chapter 10 is written in large part to wake us up from such false expectations and to face the reality that we are in the midst of a holy war. Whether we know it or not, there is a battle that is going on underneath everything that we ever encounter. And the battle in many regards is right here. It's inside of us. It's in our own hearts. And it's between us in our relationships. And at a global level, it's between nations and the machinations of men and nations. Job told us that we should expect this. He says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. I don't know if you've ever seen a fire, but it's pretty consistent that the sparks fly upward. Never seen them fly downward. It just doesn't happen. It's the nature of the sparks to fly upward. And what Job is trying to say is it's the nature of the life of man that there will be trouble. Bank on it. You can count on it. Now today in Daniel chapter 10, what we want to do is to come face to face with that reality. And we want to recognize that that is true and that maybe some of us have put down our armaments long ago and little do we know we've unwittingly come under the influence and the power of the enemy. And for some of us, we may be disillusioned and discouraged because we've been unprepared for the spiritual battles that God and Christ tell us that we're going to expect, but we have in some way or in some form suppressed that knowledge in unrighteousness. And it's important now that it comes out into our mind's eye and that we recognize it, acknowledge it, prepare for it, and learn how to fight spiritually in the way that God has called us to. Now to do this, I want to just look at this passage in two ways Uh, this morning. There's um, many other things I want to say than just two things. But for the sake of time, we're going to just say these two things today. We want to see, first of all, that we must personally enlist ourselves in the fight of faith. We are called and we must personally enlist ourselves in the fight of faith. And we see Daniel do that here in this passage. And we see actually the divine being who comes and visits him and potentially divine beings that come and visit him here in Daniel chapter are doing that, and we must personally enlist ourselves in the fight of faith. But secondly, and really even most importantly, by virtue of conclusion today, we must personally encounter the God who fights for us. We've got to personally enlist ourselves in the fight of faith, but we've got to personally encounter the God who fights for us. And it's those twin truths that we need as we walk into spiritual warfare. Now let's start with personal enlistment of ourselves in the fight of faith. This chapter starts out as most of the chapters in the latter half of Daniel start out with a vision and a note about a king. It says, in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel. 
Now, this note on a time and a king is critically important to the understanding of Daniel chapter 10. Let me tell you why. For the first year of King Cyrus's reign in Persia, the Lord stirred up his heart, that is King Cyrus, to send out a decree for the people of Israel to be released from their captivity and for the exiles who have been in Babylon and now Persia to be able to return home and to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, you and I know, as we've been studying the book of Daniel, if you've been with us even back last fall when we began Daniel chapter 1 and re-enter Daniel this fall in Daniel chapter 7, you know that the entire book is set in the context of captivity. That the people of Israel are in exile, that they are under godless kings and pagan nations. Now, in Daniel chapter 10, in the third year of King Cyrus's reign, a huge shift is taking place. And it's not even mentioned in the text. But this momentous, monumental moment, what is the subject of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the return from Babylon back into Jerusalem, has already taken place by the advent of chapter 10 in the book of Daniel. And you can read about that in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. You can read about the decree for the people of Israel to return to Jerusalem. Now, you can imagine in that moment when the people of Israel were given this decree by Cyrus, what hope must have filled the nation of Israel. There must have been such encouragement that now what they had prayed for, what Jeremiah the prophet had prophesied would happen is coming true. That after 70 plus years, an entire generation of Israel held in captivity in Babylon, now more than 42,000 exiles are released. We read about that in Ezra. Taken back to Jerusalem to begin the long and arduous but hopeful work of rebuilding Jerusalem to its glorious days. Now, what's an interesting about this is that we're a couple of years in to that event already having taken place. In the first year of King Cyrus's reign, the decree comes out. By the end of the second year, the people of Israel have already returned and rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. There has been an incredible joy and encouragement at the advance of what the people of Israel have been able to do in a short period of time. They've actually received, unlike what you normally see in the nation of Israel's history, partnership with the neighboring nations who were so encouraged to see them back, they even helped them in building the wall of Jerusalem. This is a Astonishing! This is remarkable season of peace, a remarkable picture of unity and the power of the Spirit. But now in the third year of King Cyrus's reign, we see that word has gotten back to Daniel that things are not going as hoped. That in fact, if we look at Ezra chapter 2 verse 4, or chapter 2 all the way to chapter 4, what we find is that the people of Israel, after the dedication of the wall under Zerubbabel, begin rebuilding the, the temple, and some of the nations around Israel begin to come into the land of Canaan, and they begin to say, hey, we want to partner with you in this work of rebuilding the temple. And the people of Israel go, you know what? That's really a calling that has been given to us, God's covenant people. And that's something that we must alone do. Now, as soon as the people of Israel say no to that, things go south. 
Those neighboring nations around Canaan begin to solicit help from Cyrus back in Persia. And they say, you won't believe what the people of Israel are doing and what they won't let us do. We would ask you to call for a halt to all of the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. Because if you actually look back in the annals of history, when these people build a wall and these people build a temple and they begin to be a powerful force within uh, the world, bad things happen for the rest of us. And sure enough, Cyrus went back to those annals of history, looked at those, and he goes, well, you know what? You got, you, you've got some wisdom here with regards to what's happened. I'm going to call a halt on everything that's going on in Jerusalem. Now, this has already made its way back to Daniel. And what we find Daniel in verse, um, verse 2 of our text has already begun the process of prayerfully submitting all of this to the Lord. He, along with the people of Israel, had been riding high, high as a kite, over the excitement of what it is that the Lord had done in bringing them back to Jerusalem. But now they were in Jerusalem going about the Lord's work, and what happens? They begin to experience opposition. Uh, new enemies begin to rise up against Israel, and it becomes quite clear that maintaining faithfulness in Jerusalem is not going to be any easier than maintaining faithfulness in Babylon. And isn't that always the case? How often do we tend to think we're going to get to a certain plateau in our Christian life and we're going to get to a certain context or a certain place where all of the pieces are going to harmoniously fit together and all of the trials and the difficulties are now going to be washed away and if you begin to work your way through life, what you're going to find is you just really move from one challenge to the next. From one enemies in this context revealing themselves in this way to new enemies in this context revealing themselves in that way. And over and over and over what happens to our, our hearts. We're surprised. We're shocked. We can't believe it. Really, is this happening? And what happens? We're leaning back on our heels. We're caught flat-footed. We're unaware. We didn't expect it. I mean, when we get back in the land, everything is going to go great. I mean, just think of the internal unity that the people of Israel are always going to experience now. Well, if history teaches us anything, is that's foolish. It's not going to be the case. There are going to be more challenges, more enemies, more difficulties. In fact, when you set your hand to the plow of doing the work of God, expect greater attack. Not less. We have it in our minds that when we are more faithful, things will go smoother. It's not true. If that were true, then Christ would have never ended up on the cross. The most faithful man of all, did things go real smooth for him? No. They didn't. The world hated him. They attacked him. You know what Jesus told us to expect? Similar. If they did this to the master, will they do something less to the servants? Of course not. The people of Israel are experiencing that. But what you see Daniel do here is the same thing that you're, he's going to call, as it were, the people of God into doing. And we see this happen in Ezra and Nehemiah. He's going to call them into prayerful vigilance to pursuing the presence of Almighty God. Now, I love this about Daniel. We're used to seeing Daniel in this posture, aren't we? A man who's abstaining from the delicacies of food. A man who's not anointing himself with the oil that he would have traditionally anointed himself with, a man who's now fasted three weeks and devoted himself to this particular problem that his people are facing miles away. 
I mean, Daniel still is taking up the burdens of the people of Israel. The 42,000 have gone back. They're nowhere in the vicinity. He can't lay his eyes on them. Yet he's entering into enlisting himself into the fight of faith through prayer for those who are suffering in the family of God. Now that's an incredibly important lesson for us because it's, it's typical in our thinking to believe that if we can't be present, then we can't really do that much. That we, if we can't tangibly help out in some way that makes us feel like we're really doing something important, then we must not be doing anything that important whatsoever. But that's not how Daniel feels. Daniel could have easily said, you know what, I'm glad those people are gone. They have been a thorn in the side. Every time I've prayed for them with confessions of sin, they've never followed it. And God just keeps heaping kindness upon them and they keep turning their backs upon him. And now I'm just glad to see them back in Jerusalem, that 42,000, and I don't have to deal with them quite. No, no, that's not Daniel's spirit. Though Daniel is still serving in Persia, he was not a part of that wave of first responders going back from exile into the land of Israel. He's still in Persia laboring under King Cyrus. He still enters into the fight of faith with the people of God through prayer. Now let me tell you why that's so important. It's so important by what we heard from Molly this, today. You know, Molly is leaving us. Makes us sad because we love her. But are we going with Molly is the question. Because we're on mission with her. She may be going geographically to a place that you're not going geographically, but spiritually she is a part of the family of God and we are called to go with her on mission. To do the fight of faith. To enter into her, enter into with her the world of conflict, of spiritual challenge that she's going to face. And you know what? While she's in Iraq, she's not here with us, but you know what? She's going to be fighting the fight of faith with you. Praying for you. Because though distance and geography separates us, the Spirit of God unites us. And we are together a coalition that's on the front lines asking for the Lord to give us success in the fight against the evil one. Now, friends, this is critically important that we don't turn deaf ears and blind eyes to what's happening across the world through persecution. And to think that uh, with our brothers and sisters who are being attacked, some of them losing their lives, some of them being in prison, some of them just losing freedoms. I was reading of what's going on in Nepal just this week. Some of you know the 9,000 who lost their lives with regards to the earthquakes that were earlier this year. But some of you may not be aware that a new constitution is being written that would potentially, uh, Nepal, a recently secular nation, pulled out of its old Hindu roots, recent secular nation, now is writing a new constitution that could possibly lead them in a direction where someone could not convert from one religion to the next. And thus cut off the ability for open discipleship or proselytizing for the gospel. Now that's happening more for our brothers and sisters in Nepal. Are we entering into it? With prayer, we're not Nepal, Iran, or, or Iraq, or what's going on in Greece. There's all kinds of places. You just pick a place on the map. One of the things that this passage calls us to is not to stick our heads in the sand about what's going on with our brothers and sisters around the world. It's calling on us to buy a book called Operation World and find out about what's happening in various nations or to go online to Voice of the Martyrs 
and sign up for their email newsletter that tells you about imprisonments and attacks and suppression and oppression of Christians across the world and enter prayerfully as Daniel is doing here enlisting himself in the fight of faith doing everything within his power to unite with them in this fight against the evil one. Now I want you to see that how he fights is not with picking up guns, sending hate mail. He doesn't actually try to pull political strings. He, he doesn't start a nonprofit organization exactly or a think tank. Now to say all of those things is to not say that those things are inherently evil or wrong or bad. But it is to say those are not the tools of the kingdom. That is not how change in the kingdom happens by a change in legislation. The movement of a particular national leader. You know how it happens? When the Spirit of God shows up. Do you know how the Spirit of God shows up? When God's people plead for His presence in prayer. When God's people are spiritually on their knees asking the Lord to come in proportion to their needs. You see Jesus as he's standing before Pilate. It's not throwing punches. When Peter picks up his sword to cut off an ear. Because he's angry at what is happening to Jesus. Jesus heals the ear and tells Peter to put away the sword. Why? Because his kingdom is not of this world. And because his kingdom is not of this world. You can't fight like the world. Instead of fighting as if to the death. Jesus is led like a lamb to the slaughter. And the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the gospel. You see, death is not an end or defeat. It's a victory for the Christian. And so, so there is an entirely different way of conceiving of how the kingdom of God works. And, and the temptation, I think, that Jesus often faced with his own disciples was that he would become some national and political ruler. And Jesus very faithfully and consistently said, you don't yet get it. You don't yet get it. I've come for a much deeper purpose. I've come for a much, much more profound kingdom than Pilate or the king of Rome could ever imagine. And friends, we need to remember that. If you desi do you desire to see change in your own nation? Are you praying on your knees earnestly and fasting as Daniel is displaying in this passage then why would we expect change to happen these are the means that God has given us this is the way that he has shown us Daniel didn't say we got to negotiate a peace treaty Daniel said we've got to pray we've got to commit ourselves to the way in which this kingdom comes forward and so I want to urge you we've got to enlist ourselves into the fight of faith, but then secondly, we've got to encounter the God who fights for us. Now, as you can see, with the clock as my enemy, we are not going to get very far into this. But to acknowledge that in verses 5 to 9, a man comes to Daniel on the banks of the Tigris River, and this is no ordinary man. You've never seen a man like this, have you? This man is unique. He's a mysterious figure. He appears in radiance and splendor. He's clothed, we're told, in white linen with a belt of gold. His face shines like lightning, his eyes are like flaming torches, his legs gleaming like burnished bronze, and when he spoke, it sounded like a vast multitude of people. Now, those of you who know your Bibles know that this is reminiscent of the description that's given at the opening of the book of Ezekiel. 
It's also reminiscent of the vision that's given in the opening of the book of Revelation. More than likely, either, as scholars wrestle back and forth, a cherubim, a great angel who displays, as it were, the majesty of the character of God, or a pre-incarnate expression of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to Daniel right here on the pages of Daniel chapter 10. The reality is, we won't go into the debate about who it is because we don't have time to do so, but it's very clear that what this divine being is seeking to display to Daniel is that he wants Daniel to know that God is glorious, God is powerful, God is mighty, and God holds the world in the palm of his hand. Now you tell me if that's assuring to someone who's just heard the word of the exiles that are going home to Jerusalem, that they're under opposition and attack, and the the building of Jerusalem has come to a complete halt and enemies are now pressing in upon Israel. Is it, is it crucial that you hear God's in control? It's critical. It's assuring. It's comforting. It's knowing that when you see this vision of power that lays before you where ultimately Daniel in this passage, what is he? He is thunderstruck by this appearance. We're told that he goes mute. He falls on the ground. He becomes like a dead man. Sounds a lot like Isaiah, doesn't it? Sounds again a lot like Ezekiel. When someone comes into the presence of the Lord, all of the sudden, so many of the questions and the concerns and the anxieties that have been upon the forefront of our minds are immediately answered when we're in the presence of the Lord. We don't have to know how it comes out. All we have to know is who's in control. When we know who's in control, the answer's been given. The answer's been given. And that's exactly what the Lord is doing here with Daniel. And he said, comes to Daniel in this glory. And then in the second place, notice how he comes. He comes expressing love to Daniel. He expresses love to Daniel. He says, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I now have been sent to you. This is a remarkable statement. This word actually for love is unique in the Hebrew. It's not a word that's normally translated loved. In fact, it could be translated highly esteemed. It's similar to the word that was actually translated that we looked at last week in Daniel chapter 9. It's, it's a word that says that God treasures you. God prizes you, Daniel. You have God's ear because his love has been set upon you. It's the language of Peter when he says that we are God's treasured possession. It's that sort of picture of love here. It's a kind of longing that God's own heart has for Daniel. Now let me just tell you again how important this is when you're in the midst of prayer. We have seen a picture almost of redemption right here in this vision because Daniel has been struck by the glory of God almost dead. And then we're told that the angel comes or a pre-incarnate vision of Christ comes, touches Daniel on the shoulder, and Daniel begins to rise up to his knees. And he says, oh, Daniel, man greatly loved. That's his next word. And then what do we see Daniel do? Well, he stands up, upright, but trembling in the presence of this divine being. Now, isn't that the posture of the Christian? One who has been thunderstruck by the glory of God, the, the immensity of God, by the majesty and the radiance and the splendor of God, the blazing center of his righteousness, been completely overwhelmed by it, completely astonished at who it is that he is, and we've called upon him to come? Do you realize how remarkable the prayer is that we prayed right at the beginning of this 
message today where we said, Lord, we would ask you to come into this place? What if this happened? What if he came? I had a feeling some of us go, don't come, <laughs> don't, don't come. That is scary. There is no one who meets God who doesn't have the experience that Daniel has here in this passage. Sometimes we don't even think about what it is that we're saying. But then after it is that God comes and he rises up and Daniel, he touches him on the shoulder, he says to him, you are greatly loved. And isn't that the picture of the gospel? We're undone by God's glory, but then we're rebuilt and we're mended by God's love. Isn't that what what happens? He blows us away about who he is with regards to his glory. And then he captures us and draws us into sweet fellowship with him by his love. And then notice what he says. He says, I have come to you, verse 12, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. Brothers and sisters, we have a recipe here for how the Lord responds to us in prayer. Notice what he says here. He says, first of all, Daniel, verse 12, you have set your heart to understand. Is there a vigilance in our hearts to submit ourselves to the knowledge and the understanding of God as he has revealed himself in the word? Are we set to understand it? It's this sense of immovability. Our face is set like flint to understand who God is. We will not waver. We will be committed to give ourselves over to an understanding of who God is. And then notice, secondly, Daniel humbled himself before the Lord. There's this focused attention to know who God is, and then there is on our knees, humbled before Almighty God because we've got a clear vision of who it is that we're speaking to. And then thirdly, Daniel's words were heard And fourthly, God came in response to his words. Do you see what's happening here? Setting our heart to understand, humbling ourselves before the Lord, praying to the Lord, Lord answers that prayer. Because you know what happens in the midst of that prayer? Our hearts become aligned to the will of God. They become aligned to the will of God. Sometimes we pray things for very selfish motivations, don't we? If we just start off praying without really thinking a thought of God, just thinking about our needs and thinking about how we feel and think about what's going on and think about what we want, most of those prayers are going to bubble up selfishly. But when we begin to set our minds in understanding who God is and what his mission is in the world, we begin to humble ourselves before Almighty God, all of a sudden our prayers begin to change. And you know what they begin to look like? They begin to look like the very heart of God. You begin to pray God's desires, not your own. You begin to pray prayers that are in accordance with his will and not your own. It's exactly what we read in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, that passage you know very well, speaking here of the nation of Israel. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and what? And pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will... Hear them from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now in this passage, what we we see is that there has been a cosmic spiritual battle that's been taking place. That this divine being has actually come from that battle, fighting what's called the prince of Persia in this text. Not a prince that you're thinking of. 
spiritual force behind the nation of Persia. This divine being has been fighting in the unseen world, the spiritual warfare and realities that have been going on in the physical world. And so this being has flown from the battlefield and guess what? Has come and met with Daniel because of his prayers. It's really remarkable. He said he would have been here sooner, but he was resisted for 21 days by the prince of Persia. Now again, I wish we could go into that a little bit more. We can't. But he, he got there, and he's there with Daniel now. And guess what he says at the end of this? He says, do you know why I've come? I've come to assure you of all the things I just said. And guess what I'm going to do now? I'm going to go back to the battle. Now, I think that's exactly what we're being told to do in this passage. Is that we are being told to glimpse the glory of Almighty God as revealed in the Word and sit in that glory, setting our mind on understanding of the Lord until it comes by His Spirit then experience the humility of God in the midst of his glory, humbling ourselves before him until he places his hand upon our shoulder and he says, I love you. You're greatly esteemed. You're greatly prized. Do you know why I've come to you? I've come to assure you of my promises. I've come to tell you who I am and what it is that God is doing. And I've come to let you know that what may look like a compromising, volatile situation, God holds in the palm of his hands. You have nothing of which to fear. And as he does that, the angel flies from this place and says, you know, after I tell you exactly what it is that's going on, I'm going to go back to the battle. Michael's going to be there too. He's going to help me with this. The archangel Michael, we're together going to battle against the unseen forces. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, Peter and James both tell us that the power that's being described in Daniel chapter 10 is a power that's made available to us by the Spirit. We're told that we must submit to God, we must resist the devil, and he will flee from us. There is power that has been granted we can't believe the tactics of the evil one who goes, you know what, I'm really powerful. I'm more powerful than you. Just go ahead and give in. You're not going to be able to resist this very long. You're not going to be able to withstand all of my attacks. You hear that little voice oftentimes in your head? It's from the evil one. It's not true. Because James chapter 4 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He will provide, God will, a way of escape. He tells us this. 1 Peter 5.8 says, that the same kinds of suffering that are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world are also happening to you. Resist him. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. But after you have suffered, listen to this for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, this is what he's going to do, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's what God's going to do. To him be the dominion forever and ever. You see, there's confidence that's been given and strength that comes through the Spirit when we submit ourselves to the way of God and we submit ourselves to His power and by His Spirit. You see, this clash that's being described in Daniel chapter 10 is still happening in North America. It's still happening in the Middle East. It's still happening in Europe. You've never faced a day without spiritual warfare. The question is, are you actually fighting? Or has 
the way of the evil one in our time, which tends to be incognito in our society. He works through the institutions. He works through the American dream. He works through things that we assume are just the way they're supposed to be. Are we actually fighting against the things that are out of accord with the will of God? And the reason is we don't feel very much at war because we're not. We've actually aligned ourselves with the powers and the principalities of our time rather than fought them. And let me tell you what would happen if we begin to fight them. What if you started fasting? If you fasted before, or, or maybe you haven't, but you've missed a meal before. You know what happens when you miss a meal? You get moody. You start grumbling and complaining. You start feeling like you need something. And you know what fasting is supposed to do? It's supposed to cause you to feel that need so that you can see what's often in your heart so that you can see how tangled you often are in sin and the powers of darkness because they start coming out when you don't have the things that you want. And when we begin to be on the front lines of saying, Spirit of God, come, we're fasting and praying. Spirit of God, come, we're coming faithfully to to church, we're going to gather in small groups, we're going to, we're going to storm, as it were, the gates of heaven to, to the, for the presence of God. You know what's going to happen? I can assure you warfare is going to come. But maybe we don't experience it because we're not doing it. We're not in the battle, and today God's calling us into it, and he's calling us into it for this reason and with this hope. Do you realize it's not up to you to fight this battle? That's what's so encouraging about this battle. The battle was fought 2,000 years ago on the cross when the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent clashed and the powers of goodness and the powers of evil were locked and lodged in cosmic conflict. And in that moment on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ came under the power of sin and death and on the third day he broke forth from the grave and was utterly victorious over the powers of darkness. The powers of darkness brought everything they possibly could to Jesus, and he destroyed them. If you're in Christ, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. That, that's the power of what's here in this passage. That this cosmic conflict of Daniel 10 finds its resolution on a little hill called Calvary. And that one day we will see it in all of its glory when Jesus returns, not on a little donkey riding into Jerusalem, but on a white horse and a victor and one who comes as the judge of all of the earth. When we said earlier in this service that the gates of hell won't prevail against it, we meant it. The church will be victorious, not because the church has all these great resources in ourselves. It's because the head of the church is Jesus Christ. And he will not lose. He has won the battle. It is finished. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we would ask you'd confirm these truths now to us. And that we would walk in the light of them and we would know their transformation by your grace, by your power alone. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.